Hello and welcome to another Geekswear episode. We are here for your pleasure for film reviews, news and interviews. Our segments include Cult TV, Hot Topic, Review Sweat and Trailer Talk. This upcoming episode is an inspiration interview. We are also broadcasting on the podcast app Podbean, the Green Squared app where you can also do live casting, subscribe to your favourite shows and listen to a multitude of podcasts on several different subjects. All you have to do is search engine Geeksweat, G-E-E-K-S-W-E-A-T, and you can find us on the Podbean app. Or simply go to the website, www.podbean.com. So, for today's episode, we are joined by King Dom, our co-presenter. Thanks for coming along, King Dom. Hello. Always a pleasure, Trev. And we are also with an esteemed guest from the film and TV industry. We've scoured the earth to find our special guest in the most difficult and trying of circumstances during the coronavirus lockdown. And we've fortunately been blessed with the presence of a cinematographer who you may be familiar with from his online works, which include Strangers, the ITV drama set in Hong Kong, Avenue 5, the Sky Atlantic drama set in space, and even the feature film Ivoy. Please welcome to our show, Eben Bolter. Thanks for Hello, having me. Hello. Great to meet. Hello. Did, did we pronounce your name correctly? You nailed it. Yes, well done. A lot of people get it wrong, uh, but yeah, you got it first time. I mean, why do people get your name wrong? Is it because of your you've got an unusual origin, or is it people just overacting the name? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just an unfamiliar name, isn't it? And I think um, particularly British people tend to kind of overthink it, that uh, they sort of assume they don't know how to say it. So they kind of second guess themselves. But it's, yeah, it's pronounced Eben. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm, my mum's American. Uh, my dad's British. I grew up in the UK. Um, so I just happen to have a slightly strange name. But I quite like it. It's different, you know? It's... I'm I'm Eben the DP and there isn't another yeah. one yet so that's good <laughs> excellent so you've definitely landed uh, your pin on the filmmaking map with that name I mean could you tell us a little bit more about your early life and like where you grew up before you got into film yeah sure thing um, well I grew up on the south coast um, a little island uh, called Hailing Island that nobody's ever really heard of um, it's sort of between Brighton and Portsmouth just right down the south coast a little four miles by three miles island with a bridge on and off the island but it's very sort of a sweet little quiet place to be honest um, and, and a, a bit like the Truman Show it kind of actually made me want to leave you know it's so sort of this cute little perfect place but nothing really happens there there's no there's no cinema there's no uh, film industry and so it did really kind of make me want to kind of ins- growing up there inspired me to want to see the world and travel and, and sort of get out there a bit so had I grown up in London or, or another sort of big international city I don't know if I'd have had that same sort of drive to kind of get out and do something so yeah in that way it was a great place to grow up to sort of want to leave if you know what I mean in a positive way yeah cool Cool. So, Evan, you mentioned where you grew up had no cinema. So what was your first encounter with the magic of cinema, so to speak? What first really grabbed you as a kid? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I think for most people my kind of age, it was sort of VHS. I mean, you know, it was blockbuster video and just sort of renting films every week. I mean, I think the real 
catalyst moment for me was seeing Jurassic Park in the cinema. Um, I was about nine to 10 years old when that came out. And um, seeing that in the cinema, I just, I do remember it completely blowing my head off. You know, the adrenaline, the fear, the excitement. And I really kind of uh, just, just understood the power of cinema in that moment. And I think that really did sort of inspire me to just love cinema, you know? And I knew I wanted to do something to do with movie making. I've, I've always been a, a film geek. I've always just, you know, obsessed over movies. And, and that, that, like I say, came from an early age. Um, but actually to be a cinematographer came quite a lot later. I mean, I, I, I was actually, like I went to university and I studied business studies. And that was because I thought um, I might be able to work in distribution or sales and kind of, and even maybe own a cinema one day, like kind of be involved with films as this sort of finished product. The idea of actually sort of making them kind of came to me a lot later. Um, I kind of, to be honest, sort of fell into it. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's a lifelong obsession, but a relatively recent um, thing to be making movies. Interesting. Do you remember your last traditional job before you got into film? So, for example, the kind of the least likely or maybe alternative career path that you had before you set yourself on the professional film track? Yeah, for sure. I think I've got a good answer for that. I was a, I was a headhunter in Tokyo. Wow. So, <laughs> not even in this country. That's not awesome. even in this country. So basically, um, as quick a life story as I can, I, like I said, I did business studies at university, um, got into set up to marketing and sort of sales a little bit. Um, but then I decided I was, I was working in London for a media company, not really enjoying it. I knew I wanted to do something to do with film. Um, so decided to go traveling for a year, basically saved up, went traveling for a year, went around the world, saw the world, um, then came back to London. And, and again, I was kind of like, I don't want to just be here in London doing this thing. I knew it wasn't right. I knew what I was doing wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. So went to Tokyo, basically. I, I decided to go live in Japan for two years. Um, and I just took any job I could get. So it started off like most people do as an English teacher for about half a year. Then I got a sales job at a magazine. And then I ended up uh, headhunting for a company called Morgan McKinley um, uh, in Tokyo. It was the most ridiculous thing. I was in this big office wearing a suit, talking to businessmen about their jobs in Japan. Insane, complete other world. But um, at the same time in Japan, I was really getting into still photography, taking loads of photographs, really sort of, I was, I was going, you know, I had friends who were photographers. I was going to classes for photography and had always been, like I say, obsessed with film. And I did start to sort of see that those two things may come together at some point. I didn't know how. Um, so yeah, like two years living in Japan, I kind of just decided I'm going to move back to London. I'm going to get into the film industry. So that's when I took, I, I came back and I got a job in a locations company, a company called the location guide. Um, and that was really just to get a foot in the industry in any way I could. So locations really had nothing to do with anything I wanted to do, but I was meeting film people. I was going to Pinewood. I was, you know, I was just starting to kind of see the industry from the inside. And at the same time, I started shooting short films. Um, I just, you know, I started to meet film people, started to meet directors who want to shoot their short film. I had a camera. I had been learning about photography. And it kind of just happened like that. I mean, I, I sort of, 
Um, I mean, yeah, the first shot I ever shot, I met this director. He wanted to shoot this thing. I had a Canon 5D. This is when the video mode had just been enabled about 10 years ago. Um, and I was like, well, I've got this great camera. Should we just give it a go? And we shot something and that got into the Raindance Film Festival. And then I did another short film and then I did another short film and it really did just sort of snowball. Um, what was the name of the first short film you did on the Canon it 5D? Was, so, it was a 30 second, it was, it was for Raindance Film Festival and they did like a, a film, a competition where it was make, uh, I think you had to make a, like a fake commercial, I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think that was it. So we basically did a fake commercial. It was like a black and white commercial thing where the lipstick was red, kind of like a, well, I was going to say Schindler's List, but you know. Yeah. Um, or um, what's the other one? Sin, Sin City's another Sin one. Sin City, yeah, yeah. I think Pleasantville as well. Um, but yeah, we, we used that effect. Um, and it was like a 30-second fake commercial where the director was the actor in it as well. But it got into Raindance. So we got to go to the festival. We met some people. I met more directors. A couple more shorts came along. And that's when I kind of realised that I'd always always loved films, um, always loved photography, and I was a bit of a sort of gadget geek and up on my tech. And the perfect storm of all those things was a cinematographer, and I just sort of found that role. And then once I sort of realised maybe I can blag doing this, it became about just doing my homework. It became about reading every book on cinematography I could, just watching making of, just doing everything I could to just learn and learn and just keep shooting, basically. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So, um, Evan, you decided quite early on that you wanted to be a cinematographer, but then in 2011, you wrote, directed and produced two short films. So why did you decide to do that? And what did you learn from doing those two? Yeah, that, that was, so that's, I mean, I've always really wanted to be, as soon as I knew what a cinematographer was, that's all I wanted to do. But because of the way it is at the beginning, when you just want to shoot something and just want to get experience, I did, I, I, I kind of, I produced, I wrote, I directed, really that was just, I wanted to make something. And occasionally if there wasn't the exact project I wanted to make, I was like, well, I'll have a go. I'll sort of put it all together. So the, um, the short film Proximity, that was for, um who does that it was for the 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 um five minute sci-fi film competition that gareth edwards won i've forgotten what it's called i've forgotten who did it but anyway um you get given the title you get given a synopsis and there's some other thing you get given on the day and then you have 48 hours um to so deliver. 48 hour film challenge then that's it yeah it was that um so that was the proximity so i just wanted to do one of those um, and I did um, and really in doing that it just clarified to me that I am a cinematographer I'm not a writer I'm not a director um, you know I think that short looked pretty good but wasn't well written wasn't well directed frankly so <laughs> it was you know that, that that all that early stuff was quite often just the necessity of wanting to do things um, and that's always sort of I mean, even if you cut to like five years later, I, um, I'd never shot on film. I'd never shot 35 mil proper celluloid. And that had always been this blind spot for me because of, because of the way I came up, hadn't done proper film school. Film was always this thing. I was a bit sort of uh, what scared. Camera, sorry to interrupt, but what cameras <laughs> had, you, had you been using up until this point? Because you mentioned the Canon 5D and you weren't yeah. jumping into film. Were you exploring other cameras as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely the 5D. I mean, um, the, a whole load of Canon DSLRs, 60D comes to mind to the to T2I, I think it was. Um, 
there was even a Nikon I used to use. Um, then Mini DV occasionally. Um, you know, the Red One obviously came along. The, the first Alexa came along. Pretty much, I was trying to just use whatever I could get my hands on. But film had always eluded me. I'd never kind of got a film job because I hadn't shot film before. So me and a, a few film friends. Um, well, basically, I said, I really want to shoot on film. I, I need to do this so that I can continue to shoot on film. So I produced a short film with some friends. Um, so I was, I was technically producer and DP, basically just so I could shoot on film. You know, I kind of facilitated that part of it. I kind of raised the money, did the deals so that I could shoot it on film for my benefit as much as anything else. Um, and again, that then opened the floodgates to shooting more things on film. And equally, you mentioned um, uh, before, before we sort of did this, we were talking about stuff, uh, Red Heart was the, the first feature film I did. That again was, I wasn't getting, I was starting to interview for feature films at this point. I'd shot like 60, 70 short films, maybe more. So you uh, had a lot of calling cards out there. So tons of short films, loads of directors out there. I had a lot of work. I had a showreel that was okay, but I hadn't done a feature before. So when I was interviewing feature films, I wasn't tending to get them because I hadn't done one. So sure. this, this film Red Heart again came out of necessity because it was like, well, okay, I'll produce a feature film and I'll DP it then so that I've done the first one. And that's what we did. So me and some friends kind of got together and made a really low budget feature film. Um, and as soon as I had finished that first feature film, I got the second one and then I got wow. the third one. So it was a case of just, if I wasn't going to be get given those jobs to create those jobs for myself was kind of what I did. Yeah. Because looking back on your career, it seems like 2011 was like a pivotal year for you because you seem to have done like 14 different films and that seemed to be the changing moment where you decided to become solely a cinematographer. So yeah. with that experience in mind, do you feel that, could you understand or feel that your name was already out there, like people knew who you were before you came into contact with them? Yeah, I mean, like I say, there was a okay. There were two sort of key moments um, when I was at the location guy at that location company. I was shooting short films. There was a one-year period where I shot fifty shorts in one year, and wow. that was. But I did that by having a job that was very cool. They, they, you know, they paid the bills and they let me take as much holiday as I wanted, like unpaid. So any short film that came in, I just did it. So I was, I was on Manly.com, FilmTVPro.com anything i was just you know whatever i was like here's a script i'm gonna go do it didn't matter what it was if it was good any genre so in doing those 50 shorts in one year i just you know a few of them on odds are are going to be good right um and those good ones you then can use those people see them directors see them and I, so yeah i I'd, I'd in the very like micro budget world i had met most people and worked with a lot of people and done a lot of stuff so by the time that kind of features came along, even though everything I'd done had been tiny, it still was a lot of it. So effectively that became my film school, just, just shooting a ton of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, then it's just about, you start to work your way up. So the first features I did were incredibly low budget and then mm. you get an agent and then you get a bigger film and a bigger film. And it just kind of, you just creep up, you know, you just, as you learn, as you get better, as you meet new people, you know, things. Sure. Yeah. That happens. I mean, Speaking about meeting new people, uh, you had fortunately crossed paths with an up-and-coming actor from the BAME community called yeah. Amal Amin, who'd mm -hmm. been recognised by Screen International as a best newcomer and, or Screen Na and Screen Nation as well. 
and you manage to work on the trifecta of Red Heart, Drink Drugs, and KFC, which I've seen, and Hero. So what kind of energy uh, does it create on set to kind of work with somebody who's moving or ascending through the ranks like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, like meeting, I mean, I, I think my interview for Drink, Drugs and KFC, which is the first thing I did with the Mel, was um, pivotal because that really felt like it was, at the time, it was a big short. They had like, you know, 200 extras and, you know, Mel had done Kid Hood and, it, you know, it, it felt like a job. Um, so even though it was a short film, even though I'm pretty sure it was unpaid, it was... I was nervous for the interview, if you know what I mean. I was like, I really want to get this. And I think we just got on really well. I think, like, I, I, th- I, I guess he saw in me the sort of burning desire to be good at this. You know, I really was passionate about wanting to be great at this. And from him, I had that kind of small window into success in that somebody in the UK, if you're talented, if you work hard, you can get these little breaks. So frankly, we just got on really well and, and we did quite a few things together and we continue to stay in touch to this day. I mean, he's in um, Michaela's new show at the moment, which is amazing. Um, uh, I May Destroy You, I think it's called. Yeah, um, yeah. on the BBC yeah. One. Available yeah, it's so good. Yeah. But it's absolutely brilliant. And um, he's he's got a feature film that he's, um, well, he's got two that he's been trying to get off the, the ground and direct. And um I, I don't know what's going to happen with the timing, but I'd love to work with Mel again. So, you know, we, we may end up doing that together as well. So, um, yeah, that was, that he, he was a big influence for me. Yeah, because one of his last big projects was Yardi with um, yeah. Idris Elba. Yeah. So I'm guessing he's got a lot of weight to kind of get things moving forward. I mean, I can see on his IMDb now, he's got a night worth living and charming yeah. the hearts of men. So it seems like, um, even as we're speaking about him now, he's definitely making things turn over in the film industry yeah. world. A Night Worth Living is a feature version of a short that we made, made together in like 2012. Um, Amazing. So yeah, he's he's just doing his thing. And he's an incredibly successful actor as well. So sure. um, yeah, big fan of his. Evan, it's obviously really inspiring to hear about how you've actually taken the journey from micro-budget shorts all the way up to features and TV programmes, because I guess that's a journey that many of our listeners would like to make for themselves. But um, I just wanted to ask a little bit about equipment, because there's a lot of pro-consumer equipment out there right now. Is that a boon for people trying to get started, or does it make it more difficult because the market's kind of crowded? Well, yeah, I think both, just, you know, annoyingly. I mean, I think I think the access to technology and the ability to, to, you know, pick up your iPhone and shoot something that looks pretty good is incredible. It means you, everybody, there's no excuse anymore. You can just create. Um, because, though, there is so much content, it becomes about how you stand out. And that is something that I think is difficult in cinematography because, for me, myself, a lot of my philosophies about what cinematography should be are that, the cinematography has to be correct to the storytelling of the project. And what that means is occasionally the cinematography is not that important or occasionally it's at least not the most important thing. So it has to disappear slightly. So sometimes you just want invisible cinematography. It's not about that. You want to capture the perfect performance. You want the right shot, but you don't want the cinematography to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. So the real difficult thing is as a DP, 
if you have a similar philosophy like that that I do, how do you stand out? How does anyone notice you if by the very nature of the work you're doing, people don't notice it? So that's the difficult thing. And I think I think for me it's about variety. It's if you if you just start shooting things, you're gonna start to try and experiment and some stuff's gonna be wacky and maybe not work and some stuff's gonna be boring, but maybe it was correct for the piece. But you just start to build up your repertoire of taste and of ability to do things. So then when the opportunity does come to do something wacky, you can do it and it'll be good. And maybe people will then notice it. And if it's the if the project comes along that um doesn't need to be wacky and is almost invisible then people it, people know that's good even without saying it Do you know what i'm saying like, like yeah yeah totally even if, even if a review if a review says um you know this film's incredibly acted and i really enjoyed it as a cinematographer i take great pride in that it doesn't say anything about the visuals but mm. i know that i've sort of facilitated the making of something good and those performances are somewhat you know they're captured by my camera and and the environment that I helped create um and without jumping to the end you know avenue five was was that it was it was a, a comedy set in space and it was how do we give the actors the ab maximum flexibility to be funny and so a lot of my job frankly was staying out of the way it was how can we run as many cameras as possible how can we give them complete flexibility so i'm not restricting the comedy because ultimately that's the most important thing so that's the sort of big budget version but exactly the same problem you might get on something else. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. It's in some ways it's all about restraint. You're resisting the temptation to always do the flashy shot. For sure. And then uh, then a project may come along though that says we want to do the whole thing as a one-up. Great, right? You know, 1917 or in someone's bedroom, they might want to do, uh, you know, a one or an iPhone and it's just a simple thing. So you never know. I think you've just got to look at what the story is and talk with the director and really figure out what's the best way to do this visually. And if we think the best way to do this visually is be bold, then be really bold, you know, and, and try to maybe even use technology in a way it hasn't been used before. That's obviously very difficult, but, but just break the rules, go nuts, you know? Um, yeah. Something on that actually is, I mentioned this recently on another podcast, is that I look back at the first feature film really that I shot was a film called The Forgotten. Red Heart was before that, but because I produced that, that's a, I feel like that doesn't count. Um, the Forgotten got, got quite a good release. It got some good reviews. Um, but because I shot that, you know, nine years ago or something, I kind of look back at that now like you look back at sort of baby photos of yourself. And I know I did it but I kind of can't remember myself. I, like, that's me, but it's not me anymore. And I, the way I shot The Forgotten was very much, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had a lot of passion, I had some experience, but there, there was like a beautiful ignorance to it. Whereas I feel like if I shot that same film now, it may actually be worse because I've learned so much. I've learned how to do things properly, quote unquote, that I might actually lose some of the sort of beautiful ignorance of just doing it my way nine years ago. So I don't know. I think there's something in that. I think that everyone's got their own way of doing things. And if you just sort of trust your instincts, you'll actually yeah. end up with something really individual that has a lot of sort of expression in it. And the yeah. more you learn, you don't necessarily, it's, it's hard to hold on to that, I guess, once mm. you have to start, uh, you know, uh, well, doing a professional job and um, playing things slightly safer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a visual thing that you like doing if you get the chance to cut loose, like, I don't know, lens flare or overexposure or some uh, kind of visual trademark? 
Well, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I think naturally my taste is cinematic naturalism. So I like things to feel to be cinematic, dark, moody, but also feel naturalistic in that they don't feel overlit. So I love things that feel underlit. I love silhouettes. I love film noir. Um, my taste is kind of in that world. But again, I do try to kind of keep everything open. Um, every project I do, I kind of take for what it is. And I don't try to kind of push my style onto it it's more how might i do this and, and frankly i don't always know you know there's there's a western i'm talking about doing at the moment um and if i end up doing that i mean like i can almost have a conversation with myself it's okay i, I love westerns and westerns tend to be shot like this but what should we do you know should we reinvent the western should we do something completely different should we go really handheld visceral wide angle lenses close in people's faces should we do that or does that make not make sense should we be traditional and and look at you know once upon a time in the west and the only sort of more serious stuff and like that's what's so beautiful about this industry this career is that every job you sort of you don't really know where you're going to go you can kind of just come to it with all of your influences and ideas and you kind of end up somewhere and sometimes it takes you somewhere you didn't think it would go um for better or worse you know you, quite often you sort of find a project for all of the talk once you actually start shooting sometimes you're like oh okay it's this i didn't think it was this but it is that and that's really exciting speaking about um instinct and your influences I wanted to just touch back on um, a film you mentioned earlier, Jurassic Park. Uh, mm. Was there, even today in 2020, is there a particular image that draws you to what Jurassic Park was about from that film? For sure, yeah. There's a few, I love that movie. Um, there's a lot of things I could talk about with Jurassic Park. I think Spielberg in general is such a huge influence for me because of just his visual storytelling. I mean, I think Jurassic Park, you could have it on mute, you know, and you could watch it and you could understand everything that's happening. You would feel the fear, you would understand the characters, you'd understand the storytelling because Spielberg's visual storytelling is just so perfect. It's poetic. It's incredible. Um, so I think Jurassic Park and all other Spielberg films are always in the back of my mind of what's the most elegant way we can tell this story visually? How can we connect these three shots together into one shot? How can we use this close-up to really make this moment land? How can we blah, blah, blah. So um, that's a big thing to say. And I think to, to sort of answer exactly what your question was, I think um, the, the first T-Rex scene, um, you know, with the, the lightning and the rain and the way, the way that's lit, I think is unbelievable. I think that the use of lightning, the use of moonlight, backlight and rain is mm. so incredibly perfect. It holds up so well today. You know, they used an animatronic dinosaur so brilliantly. That, that, I think that's one of the, the greatest looking scenes ever shot. Yeah. Um, and it holds up so much better than let's say the most recent Jurassic, whatever it was called, um, that relied a bit more on CGI and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the best on-screen entrances you're ever going to see, and it's not even a human being. But um, And it's even also, like, you know, it's the genius of seeing the, the water cut. The water, yeah, wobbling. Yeah, yeah. Everybody just, you yeah. understand it straight away. Yeah. It just tells you so much story. Yeah. It's, you just know it's coming. Yeah. I mean, it's a chilling, it's a chilling moment being in the dark of the cinema, yeah. seeing something so small, 
and the reverberation. You're just you're just measuring what's coming by the size of the reverberations. You know what this reminds me of. We What's did an uh, episode of the Geek Sweat podcast about disaster movies, and we ended up okay. spending about half an hour talking about that scene in Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Cool, cool, cool. That was the show. And then we had to like, <laughs> tack a little bit on the end where we talked about every other disaster movie in the history of cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about, Evan, is yeah. being on your travels as well, because you mentioned you've been in Tokyo, Japan. And hmm. I'm just assuming you must have had a chance to kind of go to the cinema or catch a film out there. So in that period where you wasn't quite a filmmaker, I'm just thinking, is there an influential film or a cinematic moment or a Japanese film that you saw whilst you was over there? Good question. Um, well, I wish I had an answer for that, but if I'm honest, I can't think because, yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, I definitely, I definitely watched every single Kurosawa film whilst living in Japan. Um, sure. I also read every Haruki Murakami book whilst living in Japan. I definitely went on kind of cultural rabbit holes whilst living sure. there. Um, but if I'm honest, I don't. I did go to the cinema definitely whilst I was there, um, but I don't think I had a real kind of moment in the cinema in japan uh oh it's actually that's not true avatar and that's a weird one to say actually but I you did saw see avatar in japan well, well do you know what i saw i saw wow. i don't know if you remember but they did the um in the cinema they did a five minute scene uh before yeah. a movie and it was like it was like a theatrical event that it was night at the museum two or three whichever night okay. at the museum film it was but yeah. there was a five minute preview of avatar before the movie and I, I went to see that three times in Japan, like on my own, wow. just to take Amazing. it in. Because I knew, I knew what Cameron was doing was going to change things. Um, yeah. And the use of CGI, the use of 3D, that did have a big effect on me. And I did feel like, because thinking already at this point, I want to be a cinematographer, I want to get into the industry. It was like, okay, this is where things are potentially going. So, did you yeah. watch it in, did you watch it with the 3D glasses or without? With, yeah, with, yeah. Okay. I, did, I think it's probably the only film ever <laughs> the benefit <laughs> 3d that comes okay. to mind at least uh, i think the very nature of how avatar built into its story the idea that they're going in vicariously through these you know through the navvies whatever that kind of lends itself to that yeah it's like fake feeling of yeah 3D. it's a clever um, crossing of a threshold because i remember that <laughs> moment as well where i was just trying to catch my bearings with the glasses because yeah. I have to put them on top of my own glasses. Yeah, and sure. Like, oh, he's actually doing a thing. So the character you're in POV with is actually catching their bearings as they cross wow. over into their world as well. Exactly. So I thought that was a clever kind of acknowledgement of where the audience was in that yeah. moment of the film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd forgotten about that. So thanks for the reminder. Yeah, Avatar, Avatar the five-minute preview. <laughs> so what, I mean, just before I hand back over to Don, what would you say now as a cinematographer is one of the bigger, more obvious things that's helped you with your cinematographer's eye in a broadcast television? So like another project that I've seen that's like inspired yeah. who I've become from TV or from film, from TV? Um, either, either. Um, good question. Uh, well, it's a constantly changing thing is the truth, right? I mean, I think um, there are three, I've got a kind of triangle of creative influence and that would be South Korean cinema, 
uh, like, you know, Old Boy, Park Chan-wook, Bong Joon-ho, all of those films really, at, at the time when, when they were coming out, when I was sort of learning about South Korean cinema racing, they really inspired me to kind of bring a grunginess to my photography that can be beautiful. So South Korean cinema is always there. Then I've got, I think, Conrad Hall and Roger Deakins as cinematographers who their work, their kind of, um, the level of their work and the, sort of perfection they're like godlike status to me they're the ogs you know they're the they're they're always hanging over me as like as good as it can get um and then roger deakins won the award recently the oscar for 1917 hasn't he yeah i think that was his first one um, it was actually his second he 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 won for blade runner 2049 ah yeah sure before that as well but he's been nominated like 14 times so He's, he's incredible. But for him and Conrad Hall, they're quite similar in a lot of ways. They've just got such beautiful philosophies about cinematography. And I, I, I always, they're just there as like a kind of guiding idealism to how good cinematography they're can be. They're your cinematographer's spirit guides. Exactly. They're, they're my like Michael Jordan or my like, you know, they're my like hero oh, cool. figure where it's like, I want to be like Mike. I want to, nice. that's the thing. So, so yeah, it's South Korean cinema. Those two and then Spielberg, which I sort of mentioned why in terms of just overall visual storytelling. So within that triangle, there have been loads of films um, and there continue to be loads of films that sort of inspire me in different ways. But but my personal taste is sort of in the middle of that triangle, I think. So things like that. Um, and very, very, very recently, Chernobyl uh, blew my mind. I thought that was perfectly made. Yeah. Cool. So we've talked about some really dramatic films that have inspired you, like Jurassic Park and um, Avatar. But um, at the other end of the spectrum, we've also shot documentaries. Like Mm. you recently did um, a documentary called McKellen, playing the part about Ian McKellen. So what's your approach to a project like that that's mostly talking heads? How do you make that visually engaging for the viewer? Yeah, good question. I mean, that was... um... Yeah, I mean, when you've got someone with the screen presence of Syrian, you know, you just want to be on his face. You just, you just want to listen. And actually, the, the difficult thing on that job was, I mean, the way we shot it was one of the best experiences of my life. Was over a two week period, we'd go to Ian's house every day. We had three or four cameras set up, and we'd listen to him tell us his life story every day, and go for a really nice lunch and then come back after lunch, shoot a bit more, and then go home. It was like six hours, four to six hours of filming and with a really nice lunch in the middle. And we just got to hang out at Ian's house with Ian. It was right. So I, I knew I wanted to create a really simple lighting setup. Um, so I, I wanted to, to have an edge of theatre because he's so famously from the theatre. And I wanted it to be um, to work nicely as a close-up. Um, but but I, I wanted it also to be incredibly simple. I didn't want to make it overly glossy. I didn't want it to look like just a talking head interview that's lit with three-point lighting. So we came up with this just really massive softbox that I just put in what I thought was the perfect place to just give him this really nice, simple, soft side light. Um, had lots and lots of contrast. And then it was just picking the shots. And I had the pleasure of operating the biggest close-up. So my close-up was so big that it was like eyebrows to just under chin. And what that meant was I really had to be locked in with him because every little movement he made, I had to be there to to sort of capture it. So it, it was just a sort of thrill to just like, you know, be in his head and just be 
living and breathing every single word of his life story. And it was incredibly moving at times, you know, the times I was like holding back tears whilst I was trying to operate. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was just a complete, that was a pleasure of a job. Um, and I had a similar one, actually, uh, Nothing Like a Dane, which um, was another feature film I did um, even more recently. And that was with um, four British dames of cinema. And again, similar. We, we had all four of them around a table in this instance um, and gave them gin uh, every morning. Uh, and listened the Graham Norton approach. Stories. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they'd just start telling each other stories and they'd go, I didn't know that. And you just capture yeah. all these you had some really big names there. I mean, you had Dame Maggie Smith, Dame yeah. Ellen Atkins, Dame Judy Gench, and also Dame Joan Plowright, who uh, that's almost like 90% of the period drama history of British film, isn't it? That's right. And, and when I did the recce for that, I didn't exactly know who was going to be in it yet. I, the, the director was great, and I knew it was going to be a big project, but we were on the recce, and I was walking up the stairs at the place we were going to be shooting, and there was an Oscar on the staircase. Wow. Of, like, what's going on? The real on? one. Yeah. Well, I think it was actually it was the certificate that goes with the Oscar. It was oh, like an okay. Academy Award whatever thing. Nice. And it was, it was to Laurence Olivier. And as they're going up the stairs, it's like Laurence Olivier, Laurence Olivier. And I was like, we're in Laurence Olivier's house. Wow. Um, and yeah, Joan is the widow of Laurence Olivier. So we were shooting at Laurence Olivier's house with Joan, Judy, Eileen and, um, and Maggie. And it was just, yeah, I mean, I'm bragging, basically. It was such a good job. It was just such a pleasure. <laughs> I but don't think you can name drop a big, I don't think you can drop bigger names without bringing a not, house down. Yeah. Not than Lawrence Olivier, no. But, yeah. he, um, but that was, again, a job where I just had to stay out of the way. Um, with the Ian one, it was about give him a really comfortable environment and have lots of cameras and just let him tell his story. That, that was the job. And I think, you know, I think we did that. On Nothing Like a Dame, it was how do we kind of keep their energy up? How do we make this funny? How do we make this exciting? So we, we in around Lawrence's house, we, we had all kind of different, okay, there's a bench in the garden. We can do a bit of a chat here. We can go upstairs to this area and give them some gin. We can, so we're constantly kind of coming up with ways to keep it different. And then it was about staying out of the way. It was, we, we wanted to be, you know, we were on long lenses, handheld, um, four of us, four cameras, so that we could always be on someone's face, but also quite loose. So we could, we could, you know, okay, go from Maggie to Judy and kind of catch these little moments of, of whatever's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, we I just had to stay out of the way. You know, I had to just really, we wanted them to forget the cameras are rolling and just tell honest stories, which I think happened. Yeah. Amazing. I've also noticed that you um, had a very busy period around that time because you also worked on a sci-fi film called iBoy. So it seemed like that element of you doing lots of projects at the same time had still continued. I mean, yeah. to, to, to work on a sci-fi film with special effects and obviously you're stealing time away from Game of Thrones because you had Maisie Williams mm -hmm. in this project as well, as alongside uh, Black Mirror's Rory Kinnear. And mm -hmm. how did you find the time to kind of switch uh, gears to kind of get into the sci-fi zone? when you were doing so many documentaries? Yeah, so, yeah, you just, um, I mean, documentaries don't come as naturally to me, is the thing to say. I think for something like iBoy, that's working with a director who I know, really good friends with, worked with before, and we had a really clear vision for what that film was going to be. So all of the sort of 
inspiration just sort of comes out of you because you want it to be good you want to do this how do we make london look more interesting how do we mm. how do we do this how do we do that? And all of that just isn't very natural so actually the more difficult thing is documentaries because that's less mm. that's less my wheelhouse so that's yeah. where i've got to kind of go okay what's right for this i can't make i can't make nothing like a dame look like mm. Ivory. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I mean i thought i thought the actual tackling of turning london into a superhero territory Mm. Uh, would be the difficult thing because traditionally in film, superheroes come from New York or yeah. Chicago or Los Angeles or somewhere in America. We're not known for London-based superheroes discounting James Bond, if you think about it. So how did you tackle that problem as well? Yeah, well, exactly. That's what, that's what was attractive about the project. I mean, when, when Adam first mentioned the film, the very first thing I said was the title is terrible. We've got to change our <laughs> boy. <laughs> but it's based on a book. And so it had a built-in audience. So that was never going to change. But then it was like, okay, what's the best version of this? Because there's a bad version of this and a good version of this. And so we decided to, to just sort of treat it like a real superhero film and, and ground it in its own reality. And, um, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, location wise, you know, London, having grown up close to London, uh, filmed in London all the time, living in London at the time, I think London's a very difficult city to shoot. It's actually one of the worst, if I'm honest, because wow. there's so much grey stone, there's so much grey pavement, and there's usually a grey sky overhead. And it's also very difficult to close roads, access is difficult. It's a very hard place to shoot in, on the streets in London. So we recceed, um, what we needed was a council estate that had something that we haven't seen before. So we recceed every single council estate in London. So there's a lot of, sure. you know, a lot of time going to a lot of council estates. And we found this one that had never been shot before on film. And it was in the shadow of the Shard, uh, not the Shard, um, the Gherkin, sorry. Um, so it was right in the city. So you had this beautiful visual metaphor of this little council estate and the glass of the city, you know, towering over it. And straight away, it was like, that's our movie. That's what this is. It's, a, it's, it's about the people who've been left behind and that aspiration. Yeah. Can I ask if um, you took any hint or inspiration from other projects like that that were coming around, like the Kingsman? or Misfits, which was a TV series on Channel 4 about um, young delinquents who were serving community time, and they were effectively being superheroes on the council estate. And I think Attack the Block was emerging as a film from, I think, Joe Wright. Did you sense there was a kind of a, a zeitgeist moment for that type of film? at the time yeah yeah potentially i mean i loved attack the block that had come out and i i'd actually interviewed for misfits and misfits is probably one of my biggest like at the time it was an interview where i didn't get the job and i thought i would i had like a great interview and when the yeah. phone rang i was like i've got it i, I know yeah. i've got it and i didn't yeah. have it so misfits oh. i hold kind of close to my heart actually because i did quite a lot of work to try and get that job and so i loved both of them they were definitely there in the back of the mind because we were doing our own thing Quite often when I'm shooting something, if there is that kind of zeitgeist, mm. in a way you don't want to be influenced by those things because you don't want to sure. sort of copy them. You don't want to sort of do the same thing. So yeah. one that does come to mind was um, Welcome to the Punch. Welcome, yeah, Welcome to the Punch, James McAvoy film. Um, yeah. Because of the way they shot London, they gave London this insane, like electric blue, it looked like yeah. Shanghai. And, yeah. and we didn't want to copy that, but we were like, we can do something similar. We can give London a bit of character. So we went for 
uh, different, but kind of sodium vapor, bluey green mixed yeah. with orange sodium at night. And during yeah. the day, we made London, we gave it a tobacco. That's the sort of word we kept using. Yeah, so they, these are your uh, Michael Mann color tones, so to speak. A little bit, yeah, exactly. But we just thought, you know, London, we don't want it to be grey and blue because it's always mm. grey and blue. So during the day, let's give it this kind of warm tobacco. Let's let's make all that grey have some yeah. sort of warm in it, and it kind of turns a cream color. So that's that's one thing I think that came out from trying to be different, actually, um, from what was happening at the moment. Attack the block again, you know, on the surface, very, very similar, but we actually did try to kind of be a bit different because we didn't just yeah. want to sort of jump on the bandwagon of that. Yeah. Cool. So, Evan, can you tell us a little bit about working on Strangers with John Sim, very acclaimed TV series from recent years? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a big job because it was eight hours. You know, I, that was at the time the biggest job I'd done. Um, I think in terms of budget, but definitely in terms of time because it was eight one hour episodes. So that's a lot of, you know, that's, that's four movies essentially all at once. Um, Hong Kong has always been sort of dear to my heart photographically because of Christopher Doyle and his movies with Wong Kar Wai. So I, I loved Wong Kar Wai's work. And so that was always there. And yeah, it was, I mean, when that came up, it was like a thriller shooting in Hong Kong. It was just like, yep, tell me where to sign. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the, the conversations with that were all to do with um, what's our version of Hong Kong. Mm. And one thing we realized is that it's a little bit hard to explain this maybe, but Hong Kong, everything's very dense. You know, it's incredibly, the, the buildings are so incredibly high, but there's also so much depth, you know, the, the build, it's building after building after building. And that's something that's quite hard to photograph because if you do a big wide shot of Hong Kong, what you end up with, because it's, it's so big, is this, you get tons of these skyscrapers, but in a line. And what you end up with is loads of sky and this really wide image. And actually that doesn't feel what Hong Kong feels like. So what we decided to do was do the opposite and use really long lenses. So you can't see the whole, you can never see the entire everything. You, it's more, there's a big building here and a big building here and through that street and it's kind of compresses everything. So it feels like this sort of jungle that you're looking through. So that, that, idea became you know it's a sense of not trying to show the top of the building it's yeah. more cutting off the top of the building because it's so big you can't even comprehend it that that's sounds actually, a bit more like the blade yeah. runner effect even though blade runner yeah, was on the sound stage right. that was very in an in intense concrete jungle or neon yeah. concrete jungle and it suggests your mind fills in the blanks you know in blade runner mm. You know this is a huge city and every street corner is going to be different. Even if you don't yeah. see it, it creates that sure. kind of illusion. So that's what we did in White Dragons. So that became a very long lens show. Um, and that kind of informed everything. Um, and Paul, the director, is a very performance-based director. So I knew he was going to be all over capturing, you know, providing great performances. So it became my job to kind of capture those performances whilst being true to the colour of, of Hong Kong. And the other difficulty with that job was we shot for four months in Hong Kong, but three months or two months in the UK. So okay. almost all of the interior sets in Strangers are in the UK. So it was how do we bring that light quality from Hong Kong to the UK and make the whole thing feel like it's shot in Hong Kong. So yeah, that was, that was a fun one. So you was repainting London all over again? 
Well, they were interiors. It's mostly sets, actually. But yeah, like, you know, it, we, we did some quite cool stuff. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fan of green screen. I think green screen is a sort of lazy way to do things. So mm. we were doing more like trans lights. We had like a huge video wall where we would have a, basically a projection of Hong Kong. And we put that right up against uh, a window so that as you open the curtains, you've got a view of Hong Kong through the window. So this would be like a practical location in London. But suddenly the view through the window is Hong Kong and you can sure. see it in camera. You get all the reflections, you get the light coming off of the screen into the room. It's such a great way to do it. Whereas if it had been a green screen, you know, it's sort of, yeah, you're doing all that stuff later. It doesn't really feel sure. true. Really? Why do you think green screen is so prevalent if there's a better way to do it? Uh, well, do you know what? Less and less, it, it, less and less is prevalent. You're right. It is prevalent because that's what, I mean, green screen allows you to obviously to cut people out easily and put the background in and computers and everything else make that easy, frankly. But now I think we've gone past that. I personally think green screen now is a very negative, it's bad. It's awful, frankly. Um, you, it's, a, it's a worst case scenario is green or blue screen you should be able to do it uh, in camera a lot easier i mean if you see what the mandalorian did um they basically had a big version of what i was doing on strangers whereas i had one window of a video screen mandalorian has a 360 environment that's a video screen so um you know you're basically doing the same thing but on set so rather than having green and then deal with it six months later you're do having the plate there on set that you can see the actors can see it and you can line up shots looking at the real thing so it just sort of gives you everything uh, another show i did called the feed we did the same uh, technique and because you've got the vfx we had a skyline of london that was vfx and so had all these crazy modern skyscrapers we had them do it before we shot we put it up on a big video wall the vr the window is futuristic london and that meant we could do reflections we could do all kinds of things that with a green screen you wouldn't be able to do they'd say you can't do that um so it just kind of liberates you creatively and um, you can do that now so why not I, I genuinely don't the only advantage to green screen really now because you can change your mind you could later on you could go oh actually let's change that background whereas doing it the way i'm talking about you kind of set it but personally i think that's a good thing to set it yeah um yeah. strangers if i'm not mistaken is an amazon prime original yeah. uh or sorry amazon studios original uh yeah. out on the amazon prime platform and so was the project the feed which was a one season sci-fi project as yeah. a cinematographer coming onto an amazon studios project what challenges or experiences were different with with that group that you had an experience before yeah so you know that was working with an american studio um via a uk production company so it just meant that everything had to kind of be run past them so it was just much more about communication so things like i've been saying about let's use these video walls you couldn't just sort of decide to do that and do it you'd have to kind of pitch it to them so it's a we're okay. thinking of doing this for this benefit it's going to look this much better it means you don't have to do the vfx work later blah 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 and amazon are great actually they're really um you know they they listen they understand and they uh, they they give good notes i mean i think actually for both projects amazon were pretty flawless they just sort of said great go ahead you know um 
particularly for like when it came to the grading, like right at the end, the color correction, um, both of them just said, yeah, we love it. Great. There was no notes. There was no, it's too dark, it's too bright, whatever. They just loved it. So they were really great, actually. So Amazon Studios weren't literally requiring a, a, a previs. You could just like explain what your motivation was or the technique. Usually. And they'd be yeah. on board. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, because they're the studio, they had the right to disagree or change anything. But I think they just trusted us as filmmakers, liked what we were doing. So let us do it. So, yeah, they were great. You've since gone on to work with another big US studio, HBO. Yeah. On Avenue 5, which we've touched on a bit already. But could you tell us a bit more about your experiences of working on that show? Yeah, I mean, God, that's a year of my life. So I could I could write a book about Avenue 5. Um, but HBO, to say, were amazing. They are, uh, well, okay, Netflix, I've been very lucky. Netflix, Amazon, HBO, all three of them, incredible. Um, HBO, probably the most knowledgeable when it comes to my department. Like when I was doing camera tests, when I was talking about what cameras we were going to shoot on, HBO's opinion was the most informed I've ever experienced. I mean, they we were talking about the, the, the new large format Alexa had come out. We were talking about using that. And basically they were saying, well, you could use that, but you know, we're going to be shooting four cameras. There's a, there's a limit on the amount of glass that's available for large format, which is very true. And also one thing that large format gives you is very shallow focus. And you really want incredibly shallow focus when we're building these sets that are 300 feet long. And it was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't want that. We want a bit more depth. So they were brilliant, very informed, very technical. They respected, I mean, Armando Iannucci, our showrunner, they love him. And pretty much what Armando wanted, they gave him pretty much. So it was, that was great. Yeah, Avenue 5 was a monster project um, because you've got Armando Iannucci, who's like a comedy great in space you know and, and that those two things are just so at odds with each other you've got this sort of you know the thick of it and veep this kind of naturalistic comedy what does that look like if you put it in space and when the project first came up you know i said to my agent i don't really want to do comedy like I, like i've got a very open mind and i, I want to work in all kinds of stuff but comedy is the least visual me you know uh, even genre. things like um the thick of it that's got that handheld aesthetic you're not yeah. attracted to that well, I mean, I think that aesthetic was perfect for that show. But I think as a cinematographer, the thick of it wouldn't be what I'd want to do necessarily because it's so sort of documentary style. And that, that was right for what it was. But I just, I was worried about that. But mm. talking to Armando, he, you know, I went to the interview. He said, I want to be cinematic with this. I want, I want, you, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to, I want to be able to shoot in a very loose and... Um, a comedy style but i want you to give me visuals that are incredibly cinematic so that kind of problem became really inspiring to me it became what how do i do this how do i solve these problems what can i do and i just kind of realized no one had done this before no one had approached yeah. a big comedy in space in this way i mean there's things like red dwarf and the orville but they kind of look how you expect them to look and what we were trying to do was quite different to that. So I, I knew that in trying to do something like this, whether good or bad, it would be original. Um, it would be different. So, yeah. Is it one thing that um, a lot of comedies get stuck? They stick the camera into reaction shots, which is probably one of the most limiting things you can do <laughs> to a cinematographer. 
Well, because because in comedy you need to come, you need to cross shoot without being too technical. You need to be on two faces looking at each other at the same time. So if this person's funny and this person reacts in a certain way, you get both. Mm. You know, sure. in most drama you shoot one direction at a time. And when you shoot one direction at a time, it's frankly quite easy to light it because you can sure. put a light anywhere and you're not going to see it. When you do this, suddenly that person's light is now in this person's shot, and vice versa. So cross shooting is really difficult and. Because cross-shooting is so difficult, you tend to light comedy in a very flat way. So everyone's lit, everything looks fine, and you capture the performance, that's the most important. But we wanted to have the benefit of that style of shooting, but we didn't want it to just look fine. So for me, it was about how do I create contrast? How do I do what I'd normally do, but with the limitation of I have to cross-shoot? So we did that by lots of prep, building lights into sets, um, all kinds of LED, new technology, that kind of stuff. Um, and it was really difficult, but I think, you know, quite rewarding in the end. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you've also got an upcoming project because you don't like to rest on your laurels uh, <laughs> in the future called Night Teeth. And Going back to Game of Thrones, you've already worked with Maisie Williams, and now you're giving yourself a chance to work with Alfie Allen and also Godfather, Godfather of Harlem's Lucy Fry. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about this thriller that's been filmed in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. So I was shooting that when lockdown happened. So I've shot six weeks of Night Teeth. I've got two weeks left to go hopefully next month but let's see what happens in america um and yeah we shot six weeks in new orleans um we shot in new orleans mostly studio the whole film is set in la it's um i don't want to sort of spoil what this film is because it's got a really cool genre twist um but it's the setup is it's pretty much michael mann's collateral so um you've got a driver taking somebody across los angeles over one night and they're doing something along the way that isn't what you'd expect. This has a real genre twist to that. So it's a, it is a different story. Um, I, I feel like I know what it might be by the, uh, the title. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's it. So, so first of all, another terrible title, by the way. We're going to change yeah. the title. That's, oh, it's yeah. a working title. That's a working title. Yeah, that's what it says on the scripts. That's what it's been called. That's what it says on sure. the clapperboard. But we are going to change the title. Um, the genre twist, yeah. I mean, the thing is, we never, okay, we, we never say the word vampire in the film. It's got that dust till dawn kind exactly. of feel exactly. or moment. Yeah. yeah. It, we never say that word in the film. And there's parts of that, um, like when you say vampire, you know, you start kind of going places. And a yeah. lot of the places you think we go, we don't. And we subvert. And there are sure. certain things in vampire mythology that we're like we're not doing that Stay so that. our vampires are kind of our thing and really it's more like a kind of secret gang in la is what they are they just happen to have to <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, yeah. And so it's um it's it's good i mean we've done something really interesting with night teeth i'm really excited for people to see it it's um it's sort of the first sort of bigger budget movie that i've made in america with netflix yeah. uh, it's part of their new um this is it's a proper netflix original they developed it which they didn't used to do like a film like iBoy was a netflix film but really netflix just put their badge on it and they gave us the distribution money. rights so to yeah speak. yeah and they, they bought the distribution rights before we started filming but okay. that was it you know on this one they were fully involved like a studio yeah sure and um just because of the current climate I yeah. just want to add two more questions. Are you having, did you have to work with what they call, what we're now calling COVID-19 safe protocols on your film shoot 
during a lockdown or did you take a break before you kind of make any new announcements about how to get back on set? Yeah, so, so it, we shut down March 15th. Um, so things were just starting to ramp up as we shut down. And so all we really were doing was common sense. You know, like producers did say, you know, no handshakes, um, be really conscious of coughing. You know, there were a lot of common sense notes and everyone was very serious about all of that. But now I've started talking to them again about going back and we have a full-time COVID advisor. We're going to get tested three to six times per week. You know, there's all kinds of limitations in place now. So I haven't done that yet. Um, yeah, we were shut down just before, just before lockdown. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, the other question I wanted to ask as well, uh, just yeah. before I hand over to Don, is now that the pandemic is kind of developed on the in during your production, do you have an idea of the release date, or do you think that's a kind of a grey area at the moment? Yeah, it's a shame because we were going to come out for Christmas, which is the, that's when Bird Box came out on Netflix, which is you know the most watched film. Like, so it's a real shame that because well, hopefully we're going to shoot in August now. Um, we did then... a review of Bird Box as well. Oh, cool! There you go. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, hopefully we finish shooting in August. Um, yeah, it's not going to come out until next year now. Um, so we've, it, we've probably lost half a year, um, as the whole world has to this thing. So it's a shame because it's a, uh, it's a good one. It's definitely when, when Night Teeth comes out, I feel like that's going to be the most me thing I've shot so far. Um, it's, it's much more, I'll just be able to, if, if people like that, then they like my stuff is what I'd say. Well, congratulations, and we hope it comes to fruition in the way you. that you'd hope. Thank you very much, yeah. Cool. So, Evan, finally, talking about the most you thing is a great segue into asking about where we can find you or follow you on social media. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the, the usual stuff, so I guess Twitter and uh, Instagram, um, at Evan Bolter is where I am. And I'm, I'm very like awkward and uncomfortable with all that stuff, but I do post <laughs> things. So uh, yeah, come say hello. We will. We'll keep in touch. Please do. Okay. We'll get Geek Sweat. I think Geek Sweat are already following you on Instagram, but we'll try and track you down on Twitter as well. Great. Thanks. So um, Evan, thank you for taking part. We really appreciate you being part of this episode. Stay safe and stay well during the pandemic. And uh, thank you for giving us your time. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Great chatting to you. It's great to meet you. Yes. That was Geek Sweat, and it's another inspiration interview. And I'd like to say my all thanks to my fellow presenter, King Dom. Goodbye. Uh, Geek Sweat is available on 26 different platforms across the internet, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spot, Spreaker, Stitcher, and many other more platforms besides. We thank you for listening, and your ears are welcome to listen to more of our episodes. We watch films to save you hassle. Ciao for now. <laughs>